Hi, I'm Bree. I'm Mar. And I'm Alexis. And this is Journeys to Journos, where we connect with fellow journalists on their journeys and hear what they've learned along the way. Well, we have our last guest of the season on our episode today. I genuinely couldn't think of a better person to close out season two of J to J. I just, I'm overwhelmed with how excited I am. Absolutely. We brought such quality journalists and their perspectives this season, and Taylor Lorenz of the Washington Post was nothing short of that. This conversation that you're about to listen to was incredible. Taylor has been on my bucket list of interviews since we started the podcast. I was so ecstatic that she was able to join us for this episode. We talked about how she kind of helped pioneer the internet reporting space and some of the other history of the internet that even we didn't know. Uh, And we even talked about her new book that's coming up. So I think you guys will really enjoy this episode, especially journalists who may be interested in starting to get into that tech and internet reporting space. I think this would be a really valuable episode for you guys and for anyone to listen to. Alrighty, let's get it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of our podcast. I'm super excited for this one because we have the amazing Taylor Lorenz with us. Taylor Lorenz is a columnist at the Washington Post covering technology and online culture. Before joining the Post, she was a technology reporter for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Daily Beast. She was a 2019 Knight Visiting Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, where her research focused on Instagram and news consumption. Lorenz studied political science at University of Colorado Boulder as an undergrad and went on to serve on the school's board of the Alliance for Technology, Learning, and Society. She's also working on her first book, set to publish in 2023, called Extremely Online, Gen Z, The Rise of Online Creators, and the Selling of a New American Dream. Taylor, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yay, we are so excited to have you, Taylor. And we'll just jump right into the beginning of your career. As Alexis mentioned, you went to the University of Colorado Boulder and you studied political science. How did you get into journalism or did you consider becoming a journalist while at school studying poli-sci? Yeah, definitely did not consider journalism back then. Um, I actually, so I went to CU Boulder through my junior year and then senior year I went to Hobart and William Smith, which is a small school in upstate New York. So that's where I actually graduated from, even though I'm way more active in like the CU Boulder community um, because I spent most of college there. Uh, yeah, no, I, um, I did a ton of internships in college, but they were all fashion internships. Um, I thought I would do like celebrity dressing or become a stylist. Um, and so I don't know why I had that in mind. I just kind of wanted to do something creative and, um, so you did have a journalism school, but I didn't have the GPA to even get into it. It was not even something I considered. So it really wasn't until after college, um, when I got on Tumblr that I kind of, um, I guess, started to consider working in media because I didn't, yeah, I just didn't think of journalism before that. For sure. Um, And then you were saying you didn't graduate from CU, but by the time you graduated, it was during the throes of the recession. Yeah. (laughs) I think we all kind of relate to that panic and idea kind of going into that. We graduated in 2020 during the pandemic really big shifts in the job market. So a lot of uncertainty, a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety. What advice would you give recent grads 
whether it was 2021, 22, or even this year, who may be finding it hard to find the jobs that they hoped for, or are looking to kind of get into the internet as a way to make their career? Yeah. Um, I ended up, you know, at the time it was really hard and it was really depressing because nobody could find a job. Like the recession was crazy. Like I just remember graduating and reading the news, probably like you guys with the pandemic and just like feeling like everything was falling apart. Um, And it ended up being a blessing in disguise. What I think these like big events do is kind of like upend the whole system and make you like reimagine what's possible. I had had all these fashion internships and really thought I would work in fashion. I had like a fashion job briefly after college um, that kind of like it, it, but it, it just all fell apart really quickly. And I just like, I just remember being like, well, I guess no one's really able to do anything. Like I felt like everyone was on this clear ladder before and there was this like structure to everything. And um, so I feel like with the pandemic too, it just like makes a shift and that can mean a lot of opportunity. And it can also just mean everyone has to rethink like their plan, you know, And I feel like so often we have these like plans and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I just need to get on this ladder. And then it's kind of good to have something big. Obviously, recession and pandemic is not like overall a good thing, but the silver lining is that it can kind of like get you out of that thinking. And I'm so glad that it did because I would have just been on this stupid track that I wasn't even going to be happy on, you know? And instead, I mean, I was working at call, I was working at a call center. I was working temp jobs and, um, for years after college working retail. And I remember being like, Oh, you know, I'm like 25 working retail and temp jobs. Like I'm so behind. What am I going to do with my life? Like all I'm good at is Tumblr and like, it ended up just being great. And like, I ended up leaning into it and it totally worked out, but I, it, it kind of forces you to like take that time and think outside the box a little bit. I really love that, you know, kind of silver lining point. Like you mentioned being on Tumblr and I was a really big nerd in high school. I was all over super who lock side of Tumblr. Like I love making graphic design <laughs> edits for that, which is funny because I'm a graphic designer now. So I wonder how much, you know, that kind of contributed to, to leaning into that. But I, you know, I bring up Tomo to say like, people have been forming like communities on the internet since the internet began. When did you kind of realize you could cover those communities like, you know, any other community beat? Yeah, well, it was really in 2009 um, because I was spending so much time on Tumblr and the media was writing about, it wasn't really actually writing about anything at all. Like I, I felt like I was spending hours and hours a day in these like online spaces and the media like the New York Times would just like write some corny thing or they would write about it really condescendingly that was the other thing that made me really mad I kind of felt like oh my god there's all these creative amazing weird cool diverse communities on the internet and then the media would just write like the dumbest thing I was like have you guys ever even spent time on here it sounds like you haven't and so I just kind of wanted to like be a person that could change that a little bit. This was also the era of blogging. (laughs) So like there was all of that too. There was so much disrespect, (laughs) the disrespect, (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, But seriously, they were so rude about it. Like I remember people would just be like, oh, you know, the bloggers and they're not real journalists. And they would say like, um, oh, digital journalists are not real journalists, real journalists write for print. 
And I always felt like, no, it's just as good on the internet. And I actually ended up getting jobs that way because I'd be like, I don't care, just publish my stuff online. Like, I don't care if you never put my stuff in print. I always felt like the internet was what mattered. Yeah. And I, I think it's really interesting you mentioned, you know, people really wanting to be like, oh, my stuff has to be in print. And like, this is how, you know, journalism is done. And, you know, I think a lot of times they get kind of stuck in how things should be done. So what differences have you seen in covering like virtual communities and covering online versus, you know, covering in-person stuff or trying to get into print, like those sorts of things? Well, my feeling has always been that like online is real life and we should cover it it's 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 all the same like you know it is the quote-unquote real world um and the way that people were writing about tech especially in the early 2010s was this like big dichotomy and like oh like the internet stuff or you know that wacky stuff on the internet and I was like no no that's not even not not even is that just the real world that is going to be the dominant reality soon and like we need to cover it that way so I really leaned into like I guess digital reporting skills like um using like different tools to kind of get a hold of people online like figuring out you know who owns domains like I'm pretty tech savvy um I know how to code or whatever so I just like kind of feel like having a lot of digital skills and like really understanding like tech and digital stuff like gave me a lot of authority when I was reporting on it in terms of print I mean yeah my my feeling with the print stuff and and all of these things is like it's really tempting. I feel like this is TV because I think TV is such a dead and worthless medium. Sorry to everyone that works on TV. <laughs> Mariah, do you work in TV? And I'm like, oh my God, I hope no one here works on TV. Okay, so um, I think TV is basically like the only reason I would ever go on TV is to get like a picture for my Instagram. Like I think it's the most irrelevant medium ever. Like I truly don't know who's tuning in to like the 11 a.m. hour of like ABC or something. No, no hate to them specifically, but it's kind of reminds me of like the way that people used to view print it was this status symbol it was a hundred percent just a status symbol and I think instead of like buying into old school media's like stupid status hierarchies and like what was like prestigious maybe like in the 10 years prior why don't we think about like what journalism is going to look like in the future and like lean into that and even if people think it's not as worthy eventually they will think it's worthy it's been a journey. I, You know, while you're talking, Taylor, I'm just thinking you would be such an incredible adjunct professor because I feel like we would always complain during J school that there was just a little bit of a gap in between like what professors grasp were on like currently what we're consuming, how we're consuming news, how to approach that. And it's just so incredible to know like you've been thinking about this for, as you said, 10 plus years. Touching on some of the things that you mentioned, you know, covering the internet now might seem like an obvious choice, but certainly just a few years ago, it wasn't really even highly regarded as a beat for many publications. And honestly, it wasn't even really obvious for me, you know, growing up consuming the internet and having an interest in news, I always thought the internet was like my secretive world separate from mainstream media. And so I think that's why it's also been really refreshing to read a lot of your work and your colleagues' work that have sort of developed this tech internet culture beat. How was that, you know, joining and creating, honestly, uh, a beat that, as you say, should be taken just as seriously in any newsroom? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, it's still not 100% taken seriously. I mean, I just left the New York Times, and there's definitely certain institutions that it's like a fight. You know, you still have those, like, 
managing editors that don't get it and they don't get what goes into internet reporting. They still think of it as like fluff and, oh, we'll just put you over here on the style section and you can write your silly internet stories. And it's like, no, I'm doing like big stories with like sometimes highly political implications and like it takes a lot. So um, I feel like the digital media sites got it first. That's what I always wrote for. So I, you know, Buzzfeed, Mashable, <laughs> I've written for all of them. Also a lot of dead ones. Um, I used to write for Mike.com, um, which actually kind of is still alive. They got bought, but they laid everyone off. Um, <laughs> that was the other thing to note too. So when I was coming of age in journalism in the early 2010s, especially that was when VCs were plunging tons of money into digital media. So there were all, suddenly there were all these websites for millennials. And I was like, okay, well, I'm a millennial. So like, can I write for you? And, you know, they'd be like, sure, you know, we'll pay you $20 and I would do it. But um, it was it was an opportunity to kind of like, make a little bit of an audience for myself on the internet because I felt like none of that's that's another thing that I think people need to understand or a lot of legacy journalists don't necessarily understand which is like they count on the institution to give them distribution and like give them an audience and I always feel like you kind of have to build your own audience on the internet that's really helpful you know you kind of have to like make a name for yourself online and that's how it is, you know, um, not to say that being at a big institution, especially the Washington Post doesn't like amplify my work. That's why I'm there. But I have that like core, like group of people that follows me that kind of knows my work. And I don't rely on the Washington Post to like promote my stuff necessarily. I'm actually obsessed with the last one that you just made because I constantly get in fights with people I love in my life who are like, well, how do you know you could trust this? And how do you know you could trust that? I'm like, it's the people doing the reporting and the writers that I know when I'm consuming something, not just because it's from the Washington Post or the New York Times or whatever. It's like the person's name attached to it. So it goes back to everything you just said. Um, but on a different point, and I'm kind of fascinated by this because I think inherently as a generation, we're just on our phones and know how to just consciously or subconsciously consciously consume social media. So for you, having it be your job, like, how do you actually go about doing that? Like, how do you prioritize, like, what platforms you're on, what you're following, how much time you're spending on the internet? Oh, my God. Well, I spend a lot of time on the internet, but I kind of always have, like, since Tumblr, it's not like, it just kind of is like a normal thing. Um, I'm not like, oh, got to log online now and do my job. I just kind of like use it like a normal person, um, probably more than a normal person, but not like, you know, I'm, I don't know, I'm not like forcing it or anything. Um, I kind of go where there's interesting things happening. Like, mo I don't really have like a distinction. I need a better work-life balance. I don't really have like, a. there's not a boundary really. Um, but that can be a good thing too sometimes. Um, but I just kind of, go online and consume a lot. Um, I feel like it's like to be a good writer, you have to read a lot. And I think to be a good writer about the internet, you have to spend a lot of time online. And so I spend, yeah, I spend a lot of time watching YouTube and TikTok and Instagram. I'm like, I like different meme pages and I kind of repost stuff there. Um, and then Twitter is where media people are. I don't really get news stories from Twitter because it's a lot of like media people, I feel like stuff comes more from like TikTok and YouTube um, or Discord. I mean, I cover, I mean, I guess I see things on Twitter. I kind of just like 
skim around the internet and and think like, well, what's interesting or what's happening or like I noticed this shift. Sometimes it's like um just a general like vibe shift, I guess as you'd say. Like I'll I'll sort of see something and like I'm writing about the concept of like niche internet micro celebrities this week and I'm just like using that term as a free as a way to like talk about fame and how it's changed in the past couple years um so I'll kind of like do that where I'll see something and be like oh you know that's like a good jumping off point for me to talk about something and then there's other times when there's news that I'm chasing like for instance libs of tiktok is blowing up and I'm like okay who who's behind this account what's going on and I do a lot of accountability journalism too especially around influencers because influencer stuff is a huge part of my beat that's also something that I took seriously extremely early because when I was big on tumblr uh, the first generation of YouTubers was big on Tumblr, and that's 2009 was the first content house, let's not forget. Um, <laughs> maybe you guys probably were like not even old enough to remember that, but that was The Station. That was the millennial version of The Hype House. It was called The Station. Do you remember O2L era? Of course, I visited the O2L mansion. <gasps> Did you? That was a little bit after. Okay, that was like, I thought, the first content house, so thank you for correcting that for me. <laughs> They were like third generation. Yeah, third, right? Oh my God, so many generations. <laughs> I love this internet history. Read about it in my book. <laughs> um, so in terms of like influencers, creators, whatever you want to call them, I've always taken those people seriously and been like, okay, that's a real job with real work. And people have, you know, maligned it always, especially in the early 2010s. They were like, it's nothing. It's taking selfies all day. And I'm like, no, making content is hard. And I talk to tons of content creators because I think at the, at like an influencer or creator at their core is just a power user of a platform. And so they always know what's going on. Power user. I like that term because I, I also came from, a, you know, working in a social space pretty recently. I was at USA Today and doing socials for them and creating content for all of the platforms, um, you know, especially TikTok. So like, you know, when you're, when you're using a platform, you have a much better idea of what you need out of a platform, what they're doing right, doing wrong. Like, if that's such a good way to, like, talk to people um, and really get the gist of it. And, you know, news is so fast-paced, but so is the cycle of trends and platforms on the internet. Like, I remember talking to my colleague who were older than me, and they were talking about platforms that I didn't even know. That came and went before I was, like, <laughs> even existed. So, I mean, even Vine. Vine died faster than a six-second Vine video itself. Like, how do you, how do you keep up? How, how do you do it? Oh my God, I don't know. I feel like we all do. It's just like you hear something, you download it, you check it out. I remember when Snapchat was called Pickaboo and my sister was in college still and she was like, oh, download this app. I actually, I had like a Snapchat show at one point. Um, you know, that's the other thing that I did a lot is create content for social media and run social media for these big media companies because they would always be like, oh yeah, you can write about your little internet things, but why don't you also run our Twitter account and Facebook page and all that? So I set up, I mean, I launched all of the Daily Mail, social media, and a bunch of other uh, social media for big news organizations. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just download anything with a login page and I kind of just see what happens with it. Do you also like walk around your house just like blurting TikTok trends? Like every day I find myself just being like, perfect, perfect, perfect. I mean, that's probably a little outdated now, but just like stupid stuff. And my mom's like, what are you saying? I'm like, I know other people do this too, but like, please like, I'm guilty. acknowledge that I'm not the craziest one here. 
No, you're not. I feel like things happen and I think of the TikTok audio in my head like all the time. Or like I dropped a dish and it smashed and I was like, this TikTok audio like came in my head and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, we have a Slack TikTok page at time and I remembered in our group chat sending Brie and Alexis a screenshot where like we were talking about a TikTok idea and I like said some weird like reference to something and they were just like wrote back ping pong oh yeah but it was like day one ping pong i'm like originally from new york so it was like day one ping pong and we were super into it and then they just completely ghosted me as soon as i said that i don't think it showed up on their for you page yet and i was so embarrassed um but yeah i don't know you think people know the sounds that you know and then you say them out loud and they're like what are you talking about yeah and you're like you haven't that TikTok, you know? Yeah. Like, well, well, Taylor, <laughs> you kind of mentioned, you know, you connecting with, you know, influencers and content creators. And I'd love to talk to you about kind of the importance of building your sourcing. Firstly, you recently broke a story on Nina Jankowicz's resignation from Biden's new disinformation governance board hours before uh, the press secretary addressed it at her briefing. And to me, that spoke to the strength of your sourcing, but also considering, you know, talking about TikTokers and Content creators, I always was interested when reading your stories, thinking about the process you must go through in getting internet stars to speak with you, only because when I think of creators, I think of, you know, the appeal of the internet is that they're eliminating the middleman, right? And they can like foster audiences without mainstream media necessarily giving them attention. So what does building your sourcing in this space look like? Are content creators eager to speak with you when you're reaching out? Well, it definitely depends on what I'm reaching out for. If I'm reaching out about like sexual assault allegations, no. If I'm like, hey, I'm doing this cool story sometimes. But I think actually, you know, Mariah, what you mentioned of like cutting out the middleman and the way that media is changing, that is something that I've been really vocal about. And so I think they know that I get it. And I think the main thing with content creators, and I felt this myself as a Tumblr, (laughs) um, is like, you just, you don't want to talk to somebody that doesn't get it and it's going to mess up your story. And I feel like I have authority because I've just been talking about this stuff for so long and like really advocating for their issues for so long that they know that they can come to me. For instance, um, I wrote the first big story about like TikTok dance credits um, about this girl, Jalea Harmon. And had kind of exposed all these problems that I wrote a lot about, you know, credit on the internet and, um, all of the different ways that plays out in bad ways. And I had that authority because I've already written about, about that. I covered like dub smash dancers and kind of like people on these smaller apps that ended up. So it's like, I kind of cover a lot of communities when they're small and stay with it. And there's certain issues that I have credibility on also because it's not like I learned about it yesterday. Like this is stuff that I, I know these like power dynamics of the internet and I've been covering it for a long time. So it just helps with sourcing I would say if you're just starting out, um, builds connections with small people too. Like a lot of like small YouTubers that I talked to randomly in like 2016, like are now really powerful or like, actually, you know what? It was more TikTokers. Like there's people that I found on TikTok that I've talked to randomly that like ended up blowing up bigger. Like now they're really big YouTubers. So I think just like building broad sources, don't just always try and talk to like the A-list internet people. Like a lot of times... They don't even, I mean, they're like two steps removed. Like talk to the editors that work for them, you know, talk to, cause every, every big blogger, like person has a team. It's like, talk to the assistants, talk to like the people that work in this industry that aren't just the stars as well. 
I talk to tons of managers. I talk to activists. You know, you want to like talk to all those people. Yeah, it seems like such an opaque thing to think about. But like when you're talking about all these people around them to cover, it's like the same exact thing you think when you're covering a politician or some company or whatever the case may be. Yeah, it's just like basic reporting skills, but you're just applying them to the internet. Totally. I kind of have like a little bit more of a serious question. Um, And you've talked about this a lot too. So when we think about online harassment, like automatically you go to people of color, members of the LGBTQ community, women, and kind of how one, they go about harassment, but two, they respond to like good reporting that holds people accountable or sheds light on things that need to be reported on. Um, And you obviously yourself have talked about this, but being on the receiving end of those attacks, how do you deal with that personally? 2021 was really hard to deal with, actually. That was like the only year that I really struggled to deal with it. Other than that, I kind of don't care because I'm so far removed from it. And also, I'm just like, I've been through this so many times. I'm like, okay, go rant about me all you want. I literally don't give a shit. But during 2021, it was really hard because I was kind of going through a lot and it was really affecting my family and friends. Um, That's when they started to really branch out and not just do this to me, but to like really affect the lives of my loved ones. And I felt like I couldn't protect them. And um, also it was like the middle of the pandemic and I was just like, I'm sure like everyone else like lost a bunch of people. And so that was really hard. Um, And I made the mistake of talking to a journalist about it that fucked up the story worse than I could have ever imagined at MSNBC. Um, Once again, cable news is um, horrible and no one should ever talk to them. Truly, I've said this for 10 years. I don't know why I got talked into talking to them, but they produced this horrible segment that actually misgendered the trans journalist that I was on with and just was absolutely horrible. And it was actually that segment that led to 10 times worse harassment than anything I'd ever received from like online. So it was a good case study in just remembering that the mainstream media will not, still does not understand these issues. And I think until the media really starts to understand what it's like to be like viciously kind of harassed and stalked and smeared, like we're not going to get good, good coverage of it. The main thing that I want to do is help news organizations understand what this is like, Um, because, you know, I had a lot of friends that were targets during Gamergate and, um, you know, the fallout of all of that. And I cover online culture and Internet stuff. So, like, I've just gotten it my entire career. Like, you know, I had PewDiePie make a video about me years ago, you know, and pull up at my Twitter account on his page and like tell everyone to go bother me about whatever my article and like or the Jake Paulers, oh my God, you know, no one hates me on the internet more than the Jake Paulers. I'm writing about people with huge audiences and fandoms and often very critically. And like, that's just going to get you like a huge target on your back. Also, I write about a lot of politicized things. Um, And so also I think like, you know, I'm definitely like hated by a lot in the right-wing media. And so any journalist that comes on this beat that breaks real news on the beat will encounter that. I don't want other journalists to have to deal with what I dealt with, with zero support system. And I would say also like remembering that you have your own audience and you can talk about things in your own words. And again, we as journalists don't need to go through the media, you know, we, we can be open online about harassment and we should be open about that stuff if it's something that we feel like, you know, could help educate people, like talk about it. Don't just like sweep it under the rug and let your media company ignore it. 
Like be really loud about it. Make your media company like dedicate resources to it. I think if we don't do that, younger journalists are going to get churned up and spit out. And I've seen people quit my beat over it. And that sucks because like there's people that I thought had real promise on my beat that have quit it. And I'm like, no, ugh, we like lost another one because these companies can't get their shit together. What resources do you give to people, specifically journalists, like who are doing this work or kind of like, how do you suggest they like walk through these types of situations if their companies aren't supporting them, if they're experiencing this harassment online, like what type of resources do exist for that? So a couple things, one, document everything and document your company not being supportive as well, because you'll want those receipts. Um, So I always say like, send the email, you know, if people have a phone call with you, send the email after recapping the phone call and really save like screenshot and web archive everything. Um, If you don't know what web, it's just the internet archive, like just put all the bad tweets like that you see that are really violent or threatening, like through that so that you can have a record of things later. Um, Sometimes, you know, people don't really get how bad it is. But then once you present it all to someone, you're like, look at all of this, they understand or once things escalate. So with a lot of harassment, you need to show escalation over time and something that media companies might write off, suddenly that person's harassing you more and more, something happens, maybe they commit actual violence against you or try to actually commit physical violence. And you can say, look, this person has actually been stalking and harassing me for years online. And we see that over and over. I mean, like, look at the most recent shooting. That person had been saying violent things to women online for years. There's always a pattern with people and it it, it shouldn't have to get to the level of quote unquote real world violence um, for that, for media companies to take it seriously. They should take, I mean, actually the International Women's Media Foundation is now calls it online violence because a lot of the times that's what it is. They're like viciously sort of destroying you online. Um, And it's not just like mean tweets. Like I think all of us need to just, we have to accept that not everyone is going to love us and people are horrible online. So it's, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about like real doxing, stalking and harassment um, where they're really kind of these networked um, smear campaigns against you. I have enough clout in a media organization that I can kind of speak up for myself, but I know that's not true for like an editorial assistant, right? Like, or a fellow. So I think you just have to keep a really detailed record. Um, Try to find advocates within your own company too that have more power than you and can really be a voice for you. Because sometimes you can't like march into the editor-in-chief's office, but maybe an editor that like really gets it can be a voice and and kind of advocate for you. That's really great advice, especially because, you know, so many people do deal with this and will continue to deal with this. So I think it's important for them to know like, you know, they can have help. They can go. They, there are places they can go to, like, hopefully, you know, like get through this. They're going to keep dealing with it as long as they realize that media companies are reacting in the worst way possible. Like, you know, if they know that they can instigate this weaponized, like sort of harassment campaigns against a New York Times reporter that they don't like, and the New York Times is actually going to give credence to the harassers, as long as that's the case this is not going to get better because they're realizing that they have success and they have had a lot of success. So we have to like push media companies to not buy into bad faith attacks. And that help, that also goes into like, like I said, it's not just, it. it's like also the, the reporting side of it too. Like don't just believe what bad actors say. Don't do both sides bullshit journalism. You know, don't just reprint everything 
that the police tell you, like, we need to be skeptical as journalists. We need to understand the, you know, what everyone's motivations are. And if someone's launching a campaign to get your reporter fired after they wrote a story that was critical of, you know, some right wing figure, like we need to like think about why, what those people's ultimate goal is and not just take it at face value. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I think what you're saying really speaks to the importance of where you work and, you know, how supportive they are of the journalists that are there. And, you know, I also joined the post this year too. And there's a lot to think about when, you know, starting a new job and switching companies. So like what factors influence your decision to like, to switch companies, change jobs and- Oh my God. <laughs> I've been through like 15 jobs. <laughs> your employer, like, you should never be loyal to a company. That's my feeling. A company never has your best interest at heart. It's a corporation. Its goal is to make money because we live in capitalism, you know? So my feeling is always look out for yourself. I'm definitely loyal to people. Um, for instance, my editor at the New York Times, I loved her. Um, I would do anything for her. But am I loyal to a company? No. If another company comes along and gives me a better offer, like, that's that's business you know like I'm not I'm not like oh I have to stay at this place or something I don't know I just kind of I'm like yeah if someone wants to pay me more and give me more opportunity why would I say no to that like definitely not because I like value one prestige brand like I don't give a shit about like the New York Times I literally only worked there because they were offering me a better opportunity than where I worked previously at that at that time it's not even like I loved the Atlantic actually so much. Um, with the post, I really wanted more freedom and they've actually been really great about harassment stuff. So that was like a big selling point for me. But it's funny when people were like, why would you leave the New York Times? Or somebody told me when I was at the New York Times, they were like, um, this is the top, like you've made it to the top or something. And I was just like, what? Like, is this like 1940? Like you think working this like salary job like is the top of any like not that I didn't love it it is the top in so many ways and so is the Washington Post like I'm not um I'm not saying that like working for these incredible global news organizations is not an honor and I feel so lucky and I do feel like at the top and, and I think the Washington Post is definitely at the top of what they do but it's more just like um we're all gonna have really long careers and we don't know what the media industry is gonna look like in 20 years don't chase legacy status. Never chase status, never chase a name, never make it your goal to like work at a specific place. Your goal should just be doing the work that you wanna do. You know, do that. When I was between jobs, I had like a month off in between the, the Times and the Post. And um, I wrote for Input Magazine. Honestly, they publish like really great internet culture stuff. If I didn't have the job I had now, I would just write for them. Like I, I think they're great. Like and an underrated site, and would clearly let me cover what I want to cover. And so, like, you just have to be like, which place is gonna let me cover what I want to cover? Where I'm gonna learn and grow and be able to do stuff. Okay, maybe that doesn't have the most recognizable name on the planet, but who cares? It's the internet. Like every link will travel, and you don't need those legacy brands to like make your work good. Uh, well, Taylor, speaking of kind of what you were referencing on like the loyalty to a company, you know, considering the great resignations or rather like great reshuffles that we're seeing a lot of journalists who have maybe, you know, been attached to legacy organizations now being willing and open to new opportunities. 
um, you know, within that, I'd imagine that building a personal brand could help with that transition. So why is it important that journalists build their own brand? And what should journalists know about having a digital presence outside of their publication? Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm so scared to say the word brand because I don't know if you saw, but I basically got like canceled on Twitter by like media Twitter for talking about brand. But I'm going to do it again. So, (laughs) Um, okay, so this is what I feel about this whole thing. Um, Journalists have always had brands, right? Like Barbara Walters, Walter Cronkite, Woodward and Bernstein, they always had brands. It's just the legacy media company was deciding, like, who had the brand and who was going to get the megaphone and who was going to get the promotion. That still happens, right? A lot of these people that were hating on me for using the word brand and talking about the personal brand and saying, oh, it's so uncouth. These are people with six-figure cable news contracts, okay? So to act like they don't have personal brands is ridiculous. Journalism is one of the few creative professions where actually your name is on every single piece of work. It's kind of like art in that way. Um, And so you have to be conscious of that. And I think the internet is... um, is a place where you can really go to grow your audience and it's really important to grow your own readership. Um, you know, Brianna, you mentioned earlier trust, like that's the main reason to, I think, build like a personal brand is so that your readers and your audience trust you. They know you and they know what kind of stories they can go to you with if they have a tip as well. Um, it's valuable in so many ways. Um, so I think it's just like, whereas, you know, older journalists didn't have to do the self-promotion to get their 1.7 million Twitter followers, right? Like they were reliant on their big cable news, news contracts and their big book deals and their, the, you know, legacy news organization they work at promoting them. We, well, not we, I'm old, but like younger journalists, like I think have to do a lot of that stuff for themselves on the internet. Um, And so, you know, I say be out there on Twitter for sure, Um, but it can also just be TikTok or, I mean, Annie's a good example of someone like this. Like she built depths of Wikipedia and has this huge community and um, audience for herself online. And now when she writes stories, people want to read them. And also I've seen her write a bunch of stories about Wikipedia, which she clearly has a lot of sources in because of her account. So I think that's like, that is definitely the, I mean, that is the model that I took and that's just more and more the model. It's just a really valuable way to like cut around these systems, right? Like, especially for women, people of color, LGBTQ community, like a lot of those people are not going to get the big time newsroom jobs. But I think when you show a legacy media company, hey, look, there's this really loud and powerful, dedicated audience I've built on the internet that makes that they'll want to hire you. They ultimately, they want to capture attention because they're corporations. They want to monetize it all. (laughs) But some people are just like, look, I'm monetizing it directly too. Um, My friend Cleo recently left Vox to do YouTube full time. She was producing videos for Vox for years and found enough of an audience on TikTok. And she was like, I'm actually just going to make money myself and cut out that middleman. And I don't need Vox. I don't need the Vox name on my work for people to see that it's worthy and interesting um, because people know that they can trust her and that she's great on science and tech, you know? For sure. Um, You mentioned it. We mentioned it. You're working on a book right now. Yeah. So procrastinating a book right now. Funny. I'm gonna do the Caroline Calloway thing where I take like four years to finish my book. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Well, I'm like 70% done. It's coming out like next summer, I think. You have time. 
Well, book timelines are crazy because you have to turn it in like a year before. Because I keep being like, oh, I have until like end of next summer. And then it's like, no, that means I have to turn it in by like end of this summer, which is like, I keep being like, oh, that's forever. And then I'm like, fuck, it's June. (laughs) (laughs) For real. It's like, you know, when you procrastinate your final project, I don't know if you guys do. It's literally time we did. It's that. It's literally just that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. Um, Well, when it does come out, what can readers expect that's either same, different, new from your usual reporting? And what kind of have you learned through the book writing process? Okay. One thing I learned, this is my first and last book. So get it while you can. <laughs> it's so hard to write a book. Oh my God. I'm doing a podcast next time um, is my main lesson. Um, it's been, it's been a good experience. So basically my book is about the rise of the online creator industry, influencer industry, whatever you want to call it. So it's kind of like from the mid two thousands to now, well, to 2020, which is when I kind of stopped reporting it. Um, so it's like, it's, it's very broad. I wish I just had like written a, a book about Vine or something and <laughs> it would have been easier. Um, instead, it's kind of like everything that was happening in media, everything that was happening in tech and also like a bunch of these big online figures like in entertainment over the past 15 years. It's So it's, it's kind of just like, you know, a lot of people think that influencers are a very new phenomenon um, or they kind of see TikTok and they see these shifts happening, but they don't realize. Like you guys were saying, you didn't even know about the station, right? Like people don't necessarily know about like a lot of this early stuff that happened that really like set the stage for the entire world that we live in right now. And so a lot of these lessons too, about like harassment and all of this stuff, like people, people have been talking about this since 2008, 2006, you know, like, and I hope people will find it interesting. I hope like younger people read it because I feel like there's just a lot of interesting history and like, it takes a minute for things to catch on, but eventually like people will, get it like I don't know but that is what my book is about and that is what people can expect I swear it's interesting I did try I wrote 9,000 words on grumpy cat (laughs) I've gone in a lot of tangents so my editor is probably like um we have to cut this book in half (laughs) um it's definitely been like a walk down memory lane for me because I've been like pulling up all this stuff and like oh my god how was that 10 years ago Wow. But yeah. We're so excited to to eventually get our hands on your book. We often talk about, you know, in our minds, how fresh... We're technically like gen... We're zillennials, right? Yeah. Like we're not... You know, we're sandwiched in between both realities as late 90s babies. And we sometimes could be defensive. Like I have a 16-year-old sister who has a different idea of how the internet <laughs> has, you know, began or or this influencer space. And then even you, again, are giving me newer information of actually, you know, how the timeline is. So I think, I hope young people, like you said, are going to pick it up because, you know, in such a short amount of time, there really is so many, like, so much information. Uh, so 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 excited that you're doing this i know you said it's broad but like someone needs to like be writing a book about this so i just i hope that it like puts it down because i i kind of was like got like triggered into writing the book a little bit by these tech people that came in in 2020 and were like trying to say that they that you know they started using the phrase creator economy after shitting on influencers for years and by the way like let's not forget who pioneered the influencer world it's women it's people of color it's lgbtq people like mommy bloggers were the some of the first to do what looked like modern day brand deals you know and 
Um, the first generation of YouTubers too was not cool. Like it was not cool to be a YouTuber. These were people that were really marginalized. Um, I talked a lot to Tay Zonday. Do you guys know him? The Chocolate Rain guy. And he just spoke so much about like how, you know, at, at that time and, and still, of course, the internet is such an outlet for, um, I mean, Chocolate Rain is about systemic racism and it was this thing that, um, is so funny that like 4chan made it viral. Um, but there's all of these big like issues about culture and, and stuff that I think we can like learn and think about through, um, writing about the internet. And, you know, I, I think especially in this whole space, people forget like, you know, your journalists are people and I think you're such a down to earth person. So I hope people, you know, can, can get that and, you know, really start to internalize that before they come into your comment section on, on anything. Cause you are fantastic. But before we go, we have a couple rapid fire questions of just like fun stuff to get to know you better. Um, okay, so starting with the first one, how do you take your coffee or tea? Okay, I don't drink coffee. Um, I have zero caffeine. I'm a naturally like really <laughs> neurotic and insane person. So when I have coffee, it's bad news. Um, so I do make chamomile tea though, and I actually get the flowers and I put it in a French press. Highly recommend. It's like great chamomile tea. I try and have that every night before to like calm down. A tea girl. I after my own heart. I love you. Um, okay, so what's the first app you open when you grab your phone? A text message. Ooh. I open iMessage to see like if anyone messaged me. Cool. Okay. And if you weren't a journalist, what would you be? Oh, I think about this all the time. Um I'd be working in a creative field. I, I think I'd maybe go back to like working in an ad agency because um, I did work in an ad agency for a minute before journalism doing running big social media for brands. Um, and I miss the creativity of that a little bit. Like I just would like come up with these weird campaigns and like weird things and it was fun and you got paid a lot of money because you're working for some corporation. <laughs> um so, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. That's kind of soulless too. I think I'd want to do something like creative. So I don't know. I wanted to be an artist growing up and I always, I went to like art school for a minute. So maybe I'd be trying to do that. <laughs> like you said, you know, we have long careers. So maybe there's time for it. I, I'm going to have a second coming as an interior designer. That's what actually, that's what I thought. Cause, um, I've always, I love decorating. Don't look at my background right now. This is not indicative. <laughs> this is not indicative of what I can do. I've, I, my apartment was in apartment therapy and it was like the best day of my life because I read apartment therapy so much. It's one of my favorite blogs. I would cry if I got an apartment therapy. I also love that so, so much. As you can see from my like overly maximalist pink wall, like it's just the whole room. <laughs> I love it. I had a pink wall in DC. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Okay, so do you consider yourself more of an introvert or an extrovert? Um, I'm an extrovert, undeniably. <laughs> I'm not an introvert. Sometimes I go into like, I mean, I'm sure we, you guys all deal with that. You, have you ever seen that meme that's like, oh my God, it's like, oh my God, I'm so lonely. Like, why don't my friends text me? And then like the person gets one text and you're like, oh my God, everyone wants so much from me. Like, leave me alone. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I like to go out and I'm an extrovert. I'm a very like social person. And I do, I mean, a lot of my socialization or socializing is online now because obviously the pandemic and just like, I'm not always with people. Like my friends are all over now. But. That's cool. Oh, and speaking of online, Twitter, do you love it or hate it? And why? Oh my God, I like love it, but it's a toxic love. It's like a bad boyfriend love where you're like, ugh, 
I know I need to leave, but I won't. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the love hate. Um, yeah, I love it. You know, I, um, so I talk about this a little bit online, but I have like some health issues. And so I spend a lot of time at home in bed and, um, I think that's also what like pushed me to be really online and um, to be a writer um, because I can't always like do the TikTok videos and I like love TikToks and I make a lot of TikToks for my bed, but then like people are so mean about it. <laughs> Maybe like, so I feel like I have to like get up and put on makeup or like brush my hair to do a TikTok. And what I love about Twitter is like, you can just like lie in bed and post. And even on the days that I'm like really sick, um, I can like post and and like have conversations and feel like I'm socializing with people and exchanging ideas and like it's just really great in that way. Totally. Well, Taylor, we are so grateful that we got to talk to you. We hope listeners learn as much as we did on all of the amazing information that you shared with us. And can I just say one more thing? Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, um, if anyone is listening and is interested in covering what I cover and you have questions or something, you can always hit me up. Um, also I'm really bad at checking DMs, so don't be afraid to send me like five DMs. Sometimes it's like the sixth DM that I finally, cause I get hundreds of DMs, but like, I really try to answer questions or put people in touch with people. If there's anything I can do, I just, I feel like we just need more reporters on this beat. It's actually, there's almost no reporters on this beat. There's like 10 reporters maybe on the whole beat. And, um, so I just think like, if there's anything that I can do to help or, or you want to have questions that I didn't answer, or you have like critiques or you're like, oh, I think that you could have covered this differently. Or like, why don't you cover this? Or pay attention to this. Like just send it to me. Cause I have my, all my DMS are open. I, like I really do read most of them. Um, so definitely don't be, don't feel like, Oh, she didn't talk about this on the podcast or something. Like just, you can message me and I'll talk to you. <laughs> you heard them listeners. Taylor's DMs <laughs> are open. So definitely <laughs> side through. Well, Taylor, again, thank you so much for joining us. This was an amazing conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Journeys to Journos. If you enjoyed it, be sure to leave us a review. To stay all caught up on the pod, our guests and episodes to come, be sure to follow us on socials at J2J underscore podcast. We'll see you next week.